With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeart Radio. Hey there, welcome back. Come back to the Book of Joe podcast with me, Tom Verducci, and Joe Madden. And Joe, um, I heard something about uh, a football game or something coming up this weekend. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute, but there was a really big trade in baseball that we need to talk about, and that is Corbin Burns of the Milwaukee Brewers going to the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, Brandon Hyde's Baltimore Orioles. It was a deal... I've been waiting for all winter, Joe. Going back to Milwaukee, left-handed pitcher D.L. Hall and infielder Joey Ortiz and a competitive balance draft pick next or this year, which is about number 34 of the draft coming up. So two major league-ready prospects and a draft pick for a guy I believe is one of the best starting pitchers in the game, Corbin Burns. Of course, he's in his last year of control so he's eligible for free agency at the end of the year joe give me your quick take when you heard about this deal corbin burns going to a team that won the most games in the american league last year at the baltimore orioles i was happy for Hyder a lot i mean obviously you're right uh, this guy is so good uh, he's been consistently good he, he takes him to another level by getting to the front of that rotation there in baltimore back some of those younger guys up that had great years but now there's a little less um mental pressure on their their performance in a sense or their status whatever you want to call it so I think it kind of eases uh, a lot of guys into different roles in a good way um, so from their perspective you know it's a one-year deal possibly um, you know with the new ownership in Baltimore that may have had something to do with it I don't know but all of a sudden they may have uh, more open pocketbooks that make it more likely to re-sign Corbin in the future which to me just would make all the sense in the world. I, I don't think that, that he, they're going to wait to see if he pitches well or not. I mean, they know what they like about him. They know his age. They know his injury history, everything. So that shouldn't be the issue. But they're very um, worried in a sense to always talk about what they may do in the future. And they want to put those uh, kind of talks on the side because they're concerned what it's going to sound like. And and the uh, story that they put out there, in a sense, where, listen, I'd like to have Corbin Burns for the next five, six, seven years, absolutely. So anyway, I hope that works out well for them. The, the prospects are another thing. You, know, it's just, you just don't know. You don't know when guys like that, um, great, great, great pedigree, I get it. I've, I've never seen these kids play, but you just don't know when prospects are going to turn out to be what they're supposed to be or not, whereas you know Burns is, and you also know that this team is World Series ready for a lot of different reasons, man. It was a really good move for the Orioles. 
Yeah, listen, I, you know, the Orioles made this move with no guarantees that they have Corbin Burns beyond this year. Mm-hmm. And they're, as you mentioned, they're at the stage now where that shouldn't matter. They're mm-hmm. trying to get back to a World Series, win a World Series. Corbin Burns is a difference maker. You know, there's good pitchers and then there's aces, mm-hmm. guys who really are staff leaders. This guy is mentally tough. He doesn't want to give up the ball when he's in the game at any point. Uh, he's pitched in big moments. I, I truly believe that there are not 30 aces in the game. Every every team has to have somebody start opening day. But, I, you know, I love the fact that they got not just a really good pitcher. They got a mentally strong guy who is going to be a staff leader by the way he carries himself, the way that he prepares, just kind of the attitude that he's going to give. As far as whether he remains there or not, Listen, he's a West Coast guy. I, I think he needs to try on the fit, so to speak, with Baltimore, see how it works. I mean, he just saw the amount of money that was thrown out there this offseason for Yashinobu Yamamoto, um, the highest paid pitcher in baseball now. And, you know, listen, he's going to have tremendous leverage going into a free agency um, auction atmosphere, if you will. So I wouldn't expect him to sign an extension at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe he will later on in the season, but at this point, I think. It's about getting the Orioles back to a World Series. I think this makes them the team to beat. So I'm happy for Corbin Burns. He's worked hard to get to this point. The Brewers had to make this deal. They couldn't lose him for just a draft pick, play the season out. So I think it makes a ton of sense on both sides. We're going to get into the prospects in a second, Joe, because you brought them up. Okay. Um, but I, I'm curious your take when you have a pitching staff and you've got that one guy who's not just getting people out, but he's got an effect on the other guys because the other rotation mates you have – John Means, who came back from Tommy John's surgery last year, love him, but obviously they're going to have to be careful with his innings first full year off of TJ. Um, Kyle Bradish, really like him a lot. I think you take a little bit of pressure off him by having Burns in front of him. And Grayson Rodriguez has got ace starter stuff. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned about him because they did use him a lot last year as a young pitcher, really bumped his innings up. And his mechanics actually, uh, I think, are a concern, Joe. I think he's a little bit of a late loader. I'd keep an eye on how much work I give that kid. And and I like having him now having to pitch maybe in the middle of that rotation rather at the top. So it makes a lot of sense. It does. And mentally for him, it'll make a big difference too. I've had that in the past. You're talking about like the the way starting rotation stacks up. I was thinking about the Rays as you're going through all that. That's what we had Um, eventually, you know, when Shields came on. And then, of course, David Price ascended. Uh, gosh, we even had uh, Wade Davis pitching at one time. Had to put him. We eventually put him in the bullpen or traded him. But when you have those two or three guys, it could really uh, makes a big difference. You you stroll into town for a three day series, and you got three guys lined up that are that good. It really makes a huge difference uh, for your team and your attitude as well as the other team. Back in the days, to talk to Tuffy Dyer of all people, he was coaching I think with the Brewers, and we walked in there with. Um, Finley, Langston, and Jimmy Abbott. Whoa. And or I think that was Oakland. I actually was with Oakland. And, and nobody liked to see those three lefties lined up. So I don't know that people really understand that. When you walk, when you sashay into a town with that kind of a starting rotation, mentally, there's an edge uh, component to that that the other team sees and that also that your team feels too. So uh, when you get that going on, it's a difference maker. I've had Shohei. I've had Johnny Lester. I think uh, you have to consider Jake Arrieta at his best is also an ace. So when you have those guys, uh, believe me, um, it, it also, the thing, again, I think it's talked about a little bit is how they can control a losing streak. Things aren't going well, and all of a sudden it's their turn. Uh, things change that night. Uh, they don't give anything up. You score two runs and you win, 
and then what that means for the next day and the day after that. There's so much nuance and feel to the through the course of a major league season that these guys impact. And of course, when you get to the playoffs, best out of five. If you have three starters like that, wow. And then and you get to the best out of sevens. It's just it's just a difference maker. And that's why where the way uh, starting pitching pitching has been almost um, diminished in a sense. But the uh, openers and the five innings and all this stuff, I that's the one thing I just I just don't quite understand why that is attractive other than keeping salaries down. Because when you get guys that go six and six plus into the seventh uh, regularly, wow, does, as a manager, your uh, strategy into the game and during the game regarding how you're going to use your bullpen, completely different. And that's how you keep these guys fresh, your bullpen guys. I've always felt that good starting rotation makes for a better bullpen always you have to evaluate all these different things when you talk about the addition of a Corbin Burns or when you are lucky enough to have James Shields and David Price and even at one time Jeremy Hellickson I mean this was like a really good group I didn't have the same thing with the Angels necessarily but I'll just throw it out there I do believe some of those young pitchers out there can develop into some really good stuff uh, over the next couple years so it makes a difference starting pitching drives the engine I've always felt that way and um if I'm running a team, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, and you mentioned the Orioles' um, new ownership there. Their test is not going to be Corbin Burns because I, I just think Corbin being a West Coast guy and free agency looming, I think he's going to wait. That's just my opinion. Sure. But I think the true test for this new ownership group is locking up guys like Adley Rushman, Jackson Holiday, and Gunnar Henderson. I mean, you saw the Brewers lock up uh, Jackson Cheerio top prospect, hasn't yet played in the big leagues. It was the right thing to do. When you have a top, top flight prospect, everyday player, don't go year to year with them. And if you're a Baltimore Orioles fan, Adley Rushman, Gunnar Henderson, Jackson Holiday, those are three franchise players. You, you give those guys long-term security, and you can feel good about it. Those guys aren't going to change. I think they're repeaters as far as performance goes, attitude-wise, makeup off the charts. That, to me, is something that is priority number one for this Baltimore ownership to let their fans know it will be a different era. And I I think that kind of began right with the Indians back in the day with John Hart with the Indians trying to lock up young talent. Um, And although we talked about moving forward with the Cubbies, we didn't necessarily do all of that. And some of these guys, as as they left Chicago and other places, did not really live up to the pedigree thought of. And I gave you the example a couple weeks ago of Mark McLemore, what I thought in the beginning and how that eventually washed out. I get it. I understand locking it up. I understand understanding your costs and being able to build in the future. And man, but when you're betting on young talent, and I know these guys are good. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But I don't believe in the in the as a scout and as having done this in the past that it absolutely is as is, is um, a lock that these guys are going to play to that level that you think they are. I get it. I would probably do the same thing, but I'm telling you, man, uh, things change whether it's through an injury or just the way a guy thinks. With these kids, you absolutely believe that they're solid. They're not going to change. This is who they are. How they are. Uh, but nevertheless, I. I would do it, yes, but I just it's just not absolutely a lock that it's going to turn out the way you think it is. Yeah, I mean, listen, Joe, I would agree with you, but I think you're looking at exceptions. Adley Rushman is, is just amazing. And Gunnar Henderson, the minute I saw him, he came up at the end of the season a couple of years ago. I just went, whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the Orioles know these guys. They drafted, developed them. I mean, you have to feel good if you're going to make long-term commitments to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you do that for the special ones. And again, I agree with you overall. It it can be risky with a prospect, but not these ones. 
And speaking of prospects, let's talk about the two going back to Milwaukee in uh, D.L. Hall, the left-handed pitcher, and Joey Ortiz, the infielder. Ortiz is going to hit. I mean, he's a good defender too, but he's he's got he's got power in his bat. I think he's going to be the everyday second baseman for the Milwaukee Brewers and until they, unless they trade uh, Willie Adamas, the shortstop. I like that pick up there. Listen, he was blocked by, <laughs> we just mentioned all these infielders the Orioles have. You know, if you're a, in the Orioles system right now and you're an infielder, I mean, get in line, take a ticket, and hope maybe somebody else, uh, an organization, finds you. Uh, so good on Joey Ortiz. He's going to get a chance to play. It wasn't going to happen. And credit to the Baltimore development system here joe they've, they've got the ability to deal top prospects guys backed up like uh the planes at o'hare mm-hmm. so that that's a really powerful position to deal from deal hall yeah great arm this is a lefty who can throw upper 90s and he did out of the bullpen last year a uh, couple of things concern me joe and i want to get your take on this in terms of the way he throws the baseball he's got a really long arm swing He's got what I call a forearm flyout, where that that forearm is really far away from his head. You look at a guy like Corbin Burns, and that 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 forearm is really packed in closely. A Greg Maddox type, a, a Bartolo Colon, long long arm swing where that ball is pointed towards center field. And I know a lot of youth coaches would teach that. I, I'm not a huge believer in, in just pointing the ball towards center field with a long arm swing. He has had some um, elbow tendonitis issues, strain react, uh, stress reaction in the elbow. He's got some walk issues, 15% walk rate in AAA. So to me, they're not sure with the injury history and the mechanics that he's going to be a starting pitcher in the big leagues. Really good arm. Reminds me a little bit of A.J. Puck and, you know, the A's and, and Marlins went back and forth. Can he start? Can he relieve? He's better as a relief pitcher. So obviously, you just talked about starters, Joe. I think your value is much higher as a starting pitcher if you can go six innings. But he may be looking at being, and there's nothing wrong with this. Don't get me wrong. Like the preference is to start, and I'm sure they'll give him a shot. Mm-hmm. But he could be a dominant bullpen arm, and um, you know that was the Josh Hader track. You know, a guy who had a long arm swing, strikeout stuff, much better in the pen as we see. Mm-hmm. So it, bottom line is, I, I like the two additions. I think they made some real good decisions on getting these two from Baltimore. The key for me is whether Hall can develop as a starting pitcher or his future's in the bullpen. How tall is he? 6'4 plus, something like that? 6'2. Okay. Yeah, 6'2 left. He's 25 years old. Uh, was a high school draft pick. I like that better than 6'5 or 6'6, six, six, right? Because remember Miller uh, ended up with the uh, Indians and, of Andrew course, Miller. St. Louis before. Yeah. Andrew, right? Uh, that's when you, when you started talking, I was thinking that. Um, guys with a big arm swing like that, sometimes it might take them longer. There's so much to time out. There's so there's so much timing involved with that, with all those lengthy levers, man. Um, you know, when the foot hits, how the arm comes around. There's days they feel it, and man, when they feel it and everything's in time, they're kind of unhittable. And like you said, the other times I was you you mentioned it, the, the walk rate really goes up, and um, and that's always a concern. The shorter arm stroke in the back, even Roger uh, Clemens had short. I mean, the the shortest was Cahill. Kenny Hill had the shortest arm stroke I think I've ever seen that throws 95. To 97 miles an hour and and it's it's just it's easier to control a, a shorter swing like that so they they know what they're seeing what they're getting if he's young he's, I'm, I'm assuming he's still a young man right early 20s probably yeah he's 25 25 oh, he's years 20. old yeah well, that would be more concerning if he's 25 a, a little bit but getting that swing under control um it's 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 not as easy as you think sometimes and and a lot of it has to do with uh, command issues because stuff wise i'm sure it's going to be there you've talked about the potential for injury of course which happens with everybody but uh my take has been guys like that tend to be 
wild in a sense, or they, they missed the zone a little bit. But once they figured out, like Andrew Miller did, man, that got nasty. And you talk about Hader, and uh, he's got such a, not only that arm swing, but a kind of rotation with the shoulders too, which makes it even more difficult to see the ball. And then there's also that um, kind of fair factor from the hitter's perspective. Um, there's there's a lot of deception involved when guys are able to command that kind of a swing. And I'm a deception guy too. So it's just one of those things. They, it, that's why scouting is so important. You have to rely on people that you know and uh, could go out and look at somebody. And for me, a, some, a pitcher like that, I would really want some veteran eyes on him. What do you see there? What have you seen in the past? Uh, pitching coaches that have worked with guys like this. What do you got? How do you uh, how do you make this thing work? That would be a really big question for me regarding uh, the acquisitional process with a guy like that. Uh, but I listen. It's it's interesting. I'm sure he's very good. I'm sure he's going to be good. But that's those are the issues I would be looking at. So to me, Joe, right now, uh, and this is not a World Series prediction, but I'll tell you on paper right now, to me, the Baltimore Orioles are the best team in the American League. And that's not a, a knock on the Texas Rangers. They won it all last year. I thought the Rangers would do more in the offseason. I thought Hayter was winding up there. Instead, they were a little bit hamstrung by the uncertainty about the RSNs and how much money's coming in there. Still a really, really good team. But I, I've got to have Baltimore 1, Texas 2, and maybe New York 3. How about that? Starting out, and again, it's early, but uh, on paper right now, I just love what this has done. The Burns trade for Baltimore. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You have to, um, I mean, Baltimore, what they had done last year, they're just unex- inexperienced when it came to the playoffs, did not play their best games there. Uh, but a lot of times you got to get that close in order to really make it work the following season. Uh, they do have everything in order right now. And the fact that they know what it takes to get there and the fact that they do not like the fact that they lost. I mean, there's motivation and that's good. That's going to matter with the young group. And it seems like you're, you've talked about, you're mentioning these guys in regards to uh, potentially long-term contracts, their, their their makeup seems to be outstanding. And that's another component of this that I think uh, isn't spoken about enough when you really want to consider uh, long-term contracts. What do you think about this guy? And, and how do you think he's going to hold up over a period of time? Is it, we, I mentioned it earlier, is it going to change him at all? Is it going to remain the same? And and I, I'd have to believe what I've seen. I don't know these kids with Baltimore, but it seems like you're right on with that. So it's, that's uh, that's probably an easy get is to predict or say that they're going to be the best team in the American League. Um, you know what you said with Texas, ups, up, absolutely is going to is going to hold true. And with Boach there in CY in the front office, I think you're going to see uh, there may be like a little bit of a tough sledding in the beginning, but they're going to get their stuff together. And I don't even know what Houston's up to these days. Um, and New York, New York's very interesting and all of that, their success to me is going to be really going to be contingent upon that pitching staff and the addition of Stroman Radone, uh, making a comeback or not. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but yes, they, they definitely have the, um, the people, uh, to be within the top three of the American league. Okay. We mentioned something about a football game coming up, Joe. We need to talk about the Super Bowl, and especially decision-making by coaches. Well, yeah, this is, uh, a favorite topic of ours, leadership, decision-making, in-game. And we can talk about the two coaches who will be making those decisions. And will they be making them on their own, or will they be getting help? We'll talk about that next. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. All right, Joe, we'll talk about, you know, from baseball, it's the manager and football, it's the head coach. The guy making the decisions has more help now than ever before. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot. The numbers are great. You go into a game with, with so much more information than you used to have. Uh, and then once that game starts, what happens? Do you rely on the numbers even more so? Uh, do you use it as just informative pieces in your decision-making tree. Uh, we've got two veteran coaches in the Super Bowl here. Of course, Andy Reid. I don't think anybody's going to tell him how to run a game. He's been around forever, extremely successful. And then Kyle Shanahan. He's 44 years old. He's had 21 years of coaching experience, eight with the Niners. He's done a fabulous job there, 72 and 54. He was on uh, KNBR in San Francisco in, in October, Joe. And... I want to throw his quotes by you here because I think it's really fascinating because the analytic movement in football really dovetails with what has happened in baseball. It's probably a little bit behind, um, but we're seeing now the effects in football the way that we we saw it in baseball. It started, um, you know, really 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and it's 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 full on in both sports right now. Here's what he had to say. I've gone to these meetings a lot in other buildings, meeting other teams, and even here. You meet with an analytics department, and they bring out this whole book, and there's two million numbers to memorize. I've watched coaches try to do that, and you just melt during games. It's too much info. And you realize most of this stuff is pretty natural, and some of it is 50-50. Some of it is your preference. I try to keep my mind on it and go with what's natural. And whatever there are, and whenever there are these obvious ones, 
like when to call timeout here with two minutes or two thirty. You know, all those things where analytics are one hundred percent right with, and the math is totally there. I don't even want to waste the time to learn that stuff because, hey guys, when it's that automatic, just tell me, and that's when I'll do it. But when it's not automatic, if it's a fifty-fifty thing, just always let me go with my gut and my experience. Because I'm always thinking about the three technique. I'm thinking about the weather. I'm thinking about the quarterback on the other side. I'm thinking about what play I have ready, what the fronts are doing, all that stuff. I'm not just thinking of, well, over 200 times in this situation, it's 58% to 42%. So therefore, if you go for it, you'll win over time. Well, I'm not playing blackjack. (laughs) I love that. This is a coach, and I'm sure he's got a deep analytics office there in San Francisco, basically saying, Guys, I I want your help. Thank you for your help. But when it comes to nailing a situation in real time in a game, there are many more factors to consider. So the decision rests with me. I, I, I just love the way he approached that, Joe. Nobody's saying he doesn't like analytics. He's saying in those moments of crunch time, there's just too many factors that the numbers cannot account for. Wow, did I say that or did he say that? That's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, and when you started that diatribe there, I was I wrote down two words before I even began, confusing or helpful. That's exactly what I wrote down. And then on top of all that, I'm not going to tip my hand, but the my quote for today is based on decision-making. So um, yes, to, to what uh, Shanahan had said, that is a perfect description. Uh, and it pretty much boils down to, yes, I want all this information. Yes, thank you you know, dropping on me. But like he said, also, I want to know the absolutes, the stuff that's like he said, 50, 50, um, can be very confusing. And, and to attempt to even, uh, take all of this, these, these volumes of information presented to you based on even just one major league game, one major league game, not even like that's one game a week that you get to digest. This is one game on a Monday. Then there's another game on a Tuesday and all this stuff that uh, needs to be devoured and and utilize it's just impossible and and he mentioned it there's so many variables that occurred during occur during the course of a game that it's there's no way for numbers to be able to predict all of that in advance and matter and yes i love that if if it's an absolute and that's kind of what i tell my guys like something you feel very strongly about let me know let me know if you feel that strongly and again that's another way of i guess saying an absolute Yes, I need to know that so that I will incorporate that. But again, if it's again, if it if you do it like this, uh, if you choose this route, it's going to work. Like he said, fifty eight percent of the time, that's not good enough, man. I'm sorry because uh, that particular day you're playing, what kind of a frame of mind is your team within uh, the pitcher that you're starting that night? How what kind of a role or non role has the other team been on? Oh, there's there's so many things to consider that the number just cannot. The number lacks emotion. It's uh, it has no feel for the day. It's um, it's and it's generated. I think he kind of insinuated this based on um, kind of a bias of the group that's creating the numbers. All those things have to be considered, and good for him. And of course, like you said, Andy Reid. My God, I would believe that again. He would tell his group, "Listen, if you really believe something, tell me it. Otherwise, keep it to yourself." And more than anything, I think it's been obvious that the departments, the analytical departments have been involved in football based on going forward on fourth downs. It really kind of gives the coaches courage to try different things because they know they're going to be supported if it fails. And again, the safety net for decision-making is analytics. So that's, it's not really knowing anything. That's another thing that people have to understand. Uh, The analytics is really that you don't really know 
what you're talking about. All you know is what the numbers say that you're talking about. And there's a difference between that. And Shanahan was really speaking about knowing based on experience where the numbers just know uh, what it's based on percentages spit out of a machine, two different God worlds completely. Yeah. And I I love the blackjack analogy that he made because he said, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit at a table for an hour and over time, the odds will work in my advantage. He said, I've got one shot. Mm-hmm. So on those decisions, I don't even want to talk about it, meaning the analytics. And here's an example, Joe. You mentioned the fourth down. And I think it's great that the analytics have shown that in a larger picture, teams should be going for it on fourth down more. And they are. I I think the football has really changed in that regard. The idea that, you know, just always try for the points and and, or punt the ball on a fourth down. There are many more times teams go for it on fourth down. And I think analytics have opened that window. And I think overall, it's a great way to win a football game. But here's the thing. When you're watching the game on TV, I don't know if this will happen on this Super Bowl, but you've seen it, Joe. It's a fourth down situation, and a graphic comes up on the screen that says, analytics say, go for it, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's it's just an obvious answer. Well, I thought this was fascinating. Remember that game, 49ers-Lions, where Dan Campbell had a couple of options to go there on fourth down, right? We, we've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Well, according to analytics... When the Lions, uh, the first fourth down call with the Lions ahead by 14, the analytics gave Detroit a 95 or 90.5% chance to win by going for it and a 90.3% chance to win by kicking a field goal. (laughs) The difference was 0.2%. And then the second decision, the win probability for a field goal was 38.8%. And by going for it, it was 39.1%. That's a 0.3% edge. So I'm telling you as a fan, are you watching the game? If they're going to put a graphic up there that says analytics say go for it, folks, that, that's basically a rounding error when you're talking about a less than 1% chance that the quote-unquote right decision is to go for it. I mean, I'll defer to the coach. I mean, again, my decision was kick the field goal. Um, without really looking at any numbers, he wanted to go for it. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm certainly not saying he went by analytics, but I'm telling you as a fan, if you see it says analytics say go for it, just keep in mind, people, it's not blackjack, and sometimes the numbers are razor thin as they were twice in this case. And again, by just by going for it, if it fails, it's okay. Um, he doesn't have to really answer to anybody. And and if somebody media-wise asks him that question afterwards, you could easily say, well, if he wanted to, that the analytics supported my decision, which then is supported by the front office and the people uh, within the organization. And believe me, that's important. Uh, people, I hope you understand that that is really important from a coach's perspective. To be a lone wolf, you have to be Andy Reid or Shanahan in his situation right now, or a Belichick. Because Belichick a couple of years ago, went for it on fourth down. I remember, I can't remember exactly the year, but it was it failed, and then he was blasted for going in on a fourth down. Where today, if a guy goes for it on fourth down, it is not successful, not nearly as uh, blasted publicly about it or within his organization. That's what you have to understand. That when the the courage of a lot of the coaches is based on support, and there's a time when you did not have the supporters. Maybe even today, some groups don't have the support to do what they're doing based on feel, knowledge, experience, whatever. And if it if it's good, it's good. But 
Nobody really pats them on the back. It's almost like, hey, just, you know, next time consider this because it, you might have been lucky, according to people. Um, and that's the kind of a thing of the past. So the decision making based on analytics normally today is supported by a large group of people within an organization. So it's kind of a safe route for a coach to take. Yeah, that's well said, the safe route, because they, they are, these departments have been, gotten larger and they are empowered. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it, most people who own football or baseball teams come from the business world. Oh, yeah. And the business world is run on analytics and algorithms and logistics. And that's the language business people understand really well. It works for them as far as running their businesses. Why wouldn't it work in a sport, right? So I completely get it. And no one's, you know, I, I really don't like the way it's portrayed sometimes that it's an either or, you know, you're either on board with analytics or you're not. Of course, everybody is on. I think it's a matter of a balance, Joe. I think it's a matter of how it's applied, how it's used. Um, and in the past, without analytics, there was probably too much reliance on gut. And the pendulum almost has swung so far the other way that the rebalancing now is what we're talking about. I think that's what Kyle Shanahan is talking about. You're right on with all that because, listen, as you're saying that, I'm remembering, you know, when I first came on board with the Rays, we were getting into that more than anybody else was. And I had already been into it with my own methods. Prior to that, with the Angels, I did not have all the sophistication and all the numbers and all the computers and this bevy of guys working within an office. But there was time, I mean, I would ask specific questions of my uh, analytical group regarding things that I saw during the course of the game that they would then include on my sheet the next day. Um, things that I thought were pertinent or important. And I would ask the question, they would then, like I said, it would be there the next day. And because of that exchange, they would probably come back at me with something else based on what I had said, what they concluded, and now have you thought about this? And that happened often. And it was very helpful. I mean, uh, when it came down, when I first started with there with the Rays, the bullpen usage, you know, there's different guys that I had. And again, when it comes down to reverse split guys, the analytics could really uh, identify uh, and a reverse split guy, both hitter and pitcher. And that's very helpful because you're going to start making decisions like the time I brought J.P. Howell a pitch to uh, Albert Pujols in St. Louis. And it's like, what are you doing? Um, and he jammed them and hit a ground ball to second base because J.P. was so good at that front hip comebacker to, to right-handed hitters, even though he threw <clears throat> 86 miles an hour. He's kind of like a left-handed Kyle Hendricks. But I was supported by the numbers based on the analytical numbers that I saw what I thought I, I, I liked about J.P. I love the front hip stuff. But now it's saying, yeah, they looked at the number. It really read well against Albert in that situation. So let's go for it. There's a lot of um, confidence that's gained through that. So all the, like, balance, you said the word balance. It's so important. I don't understand why it's so difficult to understand. Again, I've, I've talked about the analytical departments. There's, there's a lot of redundancy in that. Um, and, and again, I think they can be called down. You want it. You There's things that you want. And Shanahan will ask his group for some specifics. I'm sure Andy Reid asks his group for some specifics. But you can't handle all of it. It's impossible. The teams with better players are going to win. And I would, you know, it's easy to say that, you know, both Kansas City and uh, the Niners have among the best players in the league. And they happen to be playing in the Super Bowl. Oh, what a coincidence. You know, you use that word uh, courage for a manager slash coach uh, to make some decisions that defy analytics. Um, Unfortunately, you're right. (laughs) You know, I also like the word conviction. It does take someone who's, you know, very secure, 
both um, self-confidence and secure in his, in, in his job mm-hmm. to make those kind of decisions. And that's why, you know, I love some of these things that happen in, in, in the Super Bowl, uh, whether it's Sean Payton, Payton kicking an onside kick. Uh, the year Belichick had a young Tom Brady and decided not to run out the clock but to go for it. And it, they won the Super Bowl on a, on a rally when some people thought he should just play for overtime. Um, in the case of Pete Carroll throwing the ball in Giant Stadium on the one-yard line, didn't work out. But uh, I believe, Joe, in this football game, you're going to see something like that happen. First of all, you've got the two weeks to prepare. You've got two coaches who, to me, do have conviction to do something out of the box. And Andy Reid, to me, has always always been great about that i'm telling you right now andy reed has something up his sleeve he loves doing this to keep his players loose give them a new play a trick play a gadget uh in the course of practice time to lighten things up especially with the two weeks leading up to the game do not be surprised that he pulls something out of his hat and let's say it's going to work but i love when they have the conviction especially in a game of that magnitude to do something outside the box Safety squeeze. I mean, you're talking about the safety squeeze. We, we won that game, uh, playoff game against the Cardinals. Uh, Jamie Garcia, Jaime Garcia was pitching. and We went back-to-back safeties. And it, that was the end of the game right there and probably the end of the series. Um, little things like that. And not only the fact that it worked, but what it does to their team mentally and confidence-wise. And then what it does to your team in regards to the, the ability to execute in that moment, something that you had practiced. And it comes to the forefront, and all of a sudden, it's such a difference maker in attitude and, and, like I said, confidence. Things that are you just cannot evaluate necessarily, or not at all, through numbers, but it's felt. It's absolutely felt. And you're in a dugout, man, and things start shifting. And that, we talked about this. That's why I like to stand on the top step of the dugout. I could feel, you could feel through the crowd and through the other side and, and the looks on their faces. You could see and feel, okay, this is what's going on. Your guys know it, their, guy, their guys know it, and all of a sudden, advantage, whether Cubs, uh, Rays, or Angels, you, you feel that, and that's it. You, you prepare. Another one was Anthony Rizzo when we, when we slotted him between the mound and first base to take away the bunt when the National League was still in the National League. We got, I don't know how many double plays on balls bunted back to Anthony by pitchers. You don't do it just against anybody, but versus pitchers, and then all of a sudden, everybody stopped bunting against us because we took the bunt away which I was good with because now the pitcher's swinging the bat. So these are the little things that would really bolster um, the attitude and confidence of your group. But it takes practice, it takes a buy-in, it takes commitment from the entire group in order to make it work. Hey, we need to take a quick break here, Joe. But when we get back on the Book of Joe, uh, I want to ask you about two of your former players. One is retired and one may be still playing we'll see we'll talk about that right after this there are some things that are too good to keep a secret like how your amex platinum card helps you have the perfect trip i'd like to check into the centurion lounge or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables Ooh, yum and how you get the most out of select can't miss events With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. 
And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. Joe Madden, I know you. we've talked a lot about glue guys, and Evan Longoria had to be a glue guy for you, even at a young age. Uh, and he's at a situation now where he had a, a, a good year, a good finish to his season for the Arizona Diamondbacks, made it to the World Series with that team, key contributor. Um, unsigned as of now, he is undecided about whether he's going to keep playing or not. I can tell you he has... 1,930 hits, just 70 hits short of 2,000. He's got 342 home runs, so just eight short of 350. There's only been 76 players in the history of the game with 2,000 hits and 350 homers. That is an incredible career that he has had. I don't know if it's the end, Joe, for Evan Longoria. From what I saw last year, you can still play. You got to be careful about the volume and the workload that you give them. But I, I think he's a guy you want around your players, especially a team that is in contention. I, I look at a team like the Mets. I look at a team like the Cubs. I think he's a good fit for a few teams. Those are two that come to mind for me. Obviously, it's going to be up to Evan whether he wants to take a deal with someone. Um, but I think he can still play. And um, listen, you've had him, Joe. You know what he can bring to a team. Give me your thoughts on the guy who might be looking at retirement, but I think still has some baseball left. Yeah. If, if he thinks he does, he does. That's, that's first of all with me, he, um, he would not be going out there uh, putting himself out there. He's not, he's not the kind of guy I don't think that would want to go out there just to chase some numbers. Uh, he, he's always loved to play the game. And if he thinks that he can, then I think he can, he's a long beach state guy. He's a dirt bag. And God, do I love those players? Uh, Dave snow and that group that really created that program out there. Mike Weathers followed. I'm a big fan. I used to go out there right around January with Kenny Revisa and practice my opening day speech to my teams with the long beach state dirt bags. It's just a, like a dirty old clubhouse at Blair field. God, did I love, I still love that place. That is the essence almost of minor league baseball. It's even beyond collegiate baseball. And Longo is a product of that. He's a product of that environment. Tulowitzki was another kid that went there. There's a bunch. Jarrett Weaver. I mean, I love any player that came from that uh, situation. Uh, what's his name? McNeil right now. I, I I would take that guy. So if this kid says he wants to play, he wants to play. And I, I, wrote, I wrote down the Mets before you said that. I know they're having issues with third base. The thing about Longo, uh, you're right. Uh, I would match him up. And this is, this is an analytical situation for me. Like Longo, there's going to be... You're going to read his numbers or his potential or his, whatever they have to say uh, matrix-wise. I would match him up against those pitchers, uh, righty or lefty. I mean, sometimes Longo actually was better against righties 
than lefties. And the other thing Longo was really good at was elevated fastball velocity, uh, more than down, down and away. That was that was kind of his kryptonite. So these are the kind of things you look for. Who do you match him up with? And you do that. Defensively, he was as good as anybody. I used to call him Montana because he could pick up a ground ball and throw it on the run accurately as well as anybody. It's something you would never teach, but he did it so well I never said anything to him. Uh, something Bob Clear taught me 100 years ago, but he's good at it. There's a lot of young infielders today that are much better throwing on the run that the, the previous generation was able to do, and Lago can do that. He's very good at the bunt, and he's a clutch hitter. Uh, he's a professional. <laughs> I, you know, I'm building a case, but yes, uh, Mets, Cubs. I don't know who's going to play third base for the Cubs, but that ballpark could be very conducive. And, and the other thing, the energy, the excitement. Like, I don't think that the Diamondback Stadium, even though they did what they did last year, is going to be a buzz on a nightly basis. I think if you enter that period of your career, you want to be on a good team. A team has a chance to do something in an environment that's going to make you come to play on that particular day. It's going to create that that vibe, that energy that's necessary. Uh, Mets, same thing. So I... Yeah, I don't know what he feels like regarding big cities and living there. I guess the biggest has been San Francisco. But I'd take a shot at him. If I talk to him and he tells me he's, he's inspired and, and he wants to do this and he's in good shape and you you know, you know go through all the – you look at him and the, the medicals and all that stuff. If he wants to play, I'd take him. And, Joe, the other guy I wanted to ask you about, and he's been on our show, is Sean Purdy. Mm. He pitched for you – where was it? Midland, right? He yep. pitched for you at Midland? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the Angels minor league system, if you're watching the Super Bowl, you will probably likely see shots of Sean Purdy, Brock Purdy's dad, in the stands. Uh, and uh, he, you can tell, he's like a little league parent still. He gets nervous, he gets excited, he'll react to things that happen on the field with his son uh, in big moments. So be prepared to see him. But tell us a little bit about Sean Purdy, friend of the show. I looked at his minor league career, Joe. This guy pitched. Eight years in the minor leagues, and we went fifty-eight and thirty-seven with a three-point-nine-one ERA and a strikeout-to-walk rate greater than two per. You know, you get you have those numbers in today's game. The way teams churn through pitchers, you're getting a shot to pitch in the big leagues. He, he was backed up there. You know, he went. I, I guess probably became a better relief pitcher later on. But um, listen, eight years at this game in the minor leagues without getting the show and putting up some numbers, there had to be some perseverance there. Yeah, I mean, the velocity, he wasn't a heavy velocity guy. He had more deception, uh, but definitely he had a good breaking ball. And I, I don't remember if it was a split or a changeup, but he had deception. And and again, if you watch his son play, you're watching Sean pitch. It's a very competitive method. You know, not a great body from a distance. Again, like he'd wind up and throw the ball. There was just, There was not this tremendous fluidity about it. But dang, it was effective. And when he, when you, as a manager, when he's on the mound for you, you expect good things to happen for your team. He's one of those guys. What do you expect when Brock Purdy gets under the center? Some good things are going to happen for your team. It is. It's the apple definitely did not fall far from the tree, or the ball did not fall far from whatever the mound or the uh, line of scrimmage. He's just, he's just like that. I mean, that's what he's like. You watch his kid. That's what he was like. He played. He competed. He wanted to win. He was tough-minded. He worked hard. You just liked being around him. He was all those different things. So I watch when the camera shoots him in the stands right now. It's gosh, it's the same cat. He looks the same. Kind of like you know, he's kind of got he's the blocky figure. He's not this body beautiful guy. <laughs> and if you get the chance to speak with him, which we did, you could see how sincere, straight. He's a present tense guy, man. There's nothing flowery about that. There's, he's not trying to dissemble. He's telling you exactly what he's thinking. He's a very Christian man. Uh, that's who Sean Purdy is. So when I watch his kid play, 
And then when you ever hear Brock speak, that, okay, what's his dad like? That's what he's like. <laughs> I love what you said, too, that you felt like when he was on the mound, good things were going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, listen, <laughs> it's hard to define, but I know exactly what you're talking about. One of the first things that jumped out at me looking at his minor league record was his winning percentage, 58 and 37. I mean, that that's amazing over an eight-year period in the minor leagues. Now, listen, of course I know that when one loss percentage is a product of the team and a lot of factors that are out of the control of the pitcher. There's plenty of guys who pitch great and never got a W and it happens all the time. I get all that, but there's also, you have to acknowledge something to people who just have a knack of finding a way to win, or they've got this way that teams will rally around them. And I'm seeing the same thing with his son is Brock Purdy as good as Joe Burrow. No, but you know what? Their winning percentages in the NFL are almost identical. So just keep that in mind that, you know, if it's the fourth quarter, and listen, it's tough to go against Mahomes. I get that. But just don't rule this kid out because I think he's done it long enough. And like his dad, just finds a way to be on the winning side. Agreed. I mean, look at the winning percentage for him. Look at the winning percentage of his dad. I mean, it's the same cat. Uh, and again, I we talk about this. I think we mentioned it, but give the Niners credit. They drafted him for a reason. They saw some things. They saw some things, and it probably was um, primarily uh, through conversations, talking to coaches. There was something about his makeup, the guy uh, that they were sold on. And they said, you know what? He's probably worth taking a shot at this particular time. Look at his winning percentage from the past. If we evaluate his arm, they probably had specific numbers on his arm, average, slightly below average, slightly above average, accuracy. Uh, how quickly he'd get rid of the ball with kind of what they thought of his feet. And I know the other day they were criticizing that he that he did not uh, run often or that he wasn't effective. Then all of a sudden he gets two first downs on some nice runs. Why? Because he's Sean Purdy's son. That's why. Because that's how he plays the game. And he sees things. And he's a winner. And there's something to be said for that, man. The body beautiful guys. I don't know how many times uh, we often said, boy, I wish, I wish so-and-so had so-and-so's body. Because, you know, the big body, beautiful dude can't play or the guy with the, the less than body keeps beating everybody up. I wish he looked like it. Well, you know what? No, stop wishing. Take this. Um, Marcel Lashman taught me that with pitchers, too. Latch, best pitching coach ever. But he was always hung up on velocity and, and body beautiful. But Marcel would always make sure that I looked at um, and you said it. What, what was his numbers like? What was his record like? And listen, I'm going to argue that point because guys have good win-loss records because guys care about that and they compete and they are uh, they have a tendency to win ask buddy black about that ask any really uh, former good major league starting pitcher what the one loss record meant to them it means everything to them we're trying to teach them that it's not as important anymore but if you teach them that it is if they really believe it you're going to see more guys in the sixth and seventh inning man saying i'm okay to go back out because I want the W because it does matter. This is this is a learned process that it doesn't matter. It's not true. That's that's an analytical trope that I really not I'm not into. Yeah, when you mentioned that, I started thinking about Johnny Lester. Yeah, you know, look at right. his one loss record. Right. It was important to him to yes. stay in that game, that's give right. his team a chance to win and be out there longer, mm-hmm. which is how you get Ws. Uh, so in the game, Joe, I would I really would like to see Brock Purdy win the game, but I think you're looking at. Patrick Mahomes right now is completely at the top of his game. And I just know the 49ers better not let him have the ball last in the game uh, because you're not going to beat him. He's going to find a way to win the game because he's got that, that it factor and he's just got incredible skills and incredible decision-making. So 
it'd be hard to go against a guy who's I believe Patrick Mahomes right now is playing his best football of his career, which is saying something. But again, I, I think it would be a great story if Brock Purdy wins the game. What's your thought on the game? Yeah, um, you know, they both have wonderful skilled players. I mean, if you start talking about McCaffrey and Pacheco, and you talk about their tight ends with Kittle and Kelsey, and then you talk about Samuel and um, who's the, the, the wide receiver uh, for the uh, Chiefs, they, they're, they're really balanced out. I, I, again, one thing I look at is line play, and um, I'm a big line play guy. That's why I thought the Eagles would really surprise me that the Eagles failed a bit because I love their line play, both sides of the ball. So that's something that's really rarely evaluated, and I still think that, again, if I'm running a football team, yeah, you need a quarterback. You cannot win without a quarterback, period, exclamation point, not possible. But number two would be offensive and defensive line play. I would really want uh, some really stellar groups in that in the trenches. That that really is why football is football and why teams could be successful on, a, on an annual basis. At the end of the day, I like what you said. Uh, Mahomes is a different animal, but I also I do like the overall of the 49ers. I do like the, uh, McCaffrey to me is just a different. I mean, Pacheco's like, again, these are like two wonderful running backs, but I like McCaffrey a lot. So I'm going to say a very close game. I got the Niners coming out on top and I got Brock Purdy walking off the field looking for his pop. That will be cool. And I know uh, you mentioned earlier, Joe, you're going to take us out with something about decision-making, which I love because yeah. with these two coaches here and these teams, I think, as you just said, very evenly matched, you're going to have key decisions in this game, no matter what, whether it's for the better or for the worse. And, uh, you know, it, it'll be a little bit of a chess match as well. Besides the players on the field, the coaches will have a lot to do as they always do on who wins the Super Bowl. So, uh, with that set up, Joe, uh, you had something planned. You weren't. You didn't know I was getting to no, decision-making, no. but here we are. <laughs> Dude, I swear to God, I was debating different things this morning. I'm sitting here, and I, I just said, you know, decision-making. And it's. I, I was also thinking about, you know, the building a baseball team, and uh, you, you brought it up with uh, Corbin Burns and the Orioles, et cetera. But I, this was, like, on the money. And this comes from somebody that lived many, many years ago. But he wrote, a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. Plato. <laughs> a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. And again, that's the point, man. Everybody looks at analytics and numbers as uh, being knowledgeable. It, it, they do. Or as if, they, if that's the source of their information, that you actually know something. You don't. You don't. You don't know it. Until you feel it, taste it, live it. You don't know it. You don't know it. And and therein lies the difference. And that's what Shanahan was talking about. And that's what Andy Reid's all about. Uh, a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers or math. You could augment good decision making with no, uh, math or numbers. Absolutely you can. And you want that. But at the end of the day, experience, feel, all that stuff matters. Experience in regards to making consistently good decisions I, I i believe um i just want to believe also that as a as a as a human race we're going to continue to uh rely on those methods because the moment uh decision making lacks emotion and and real feel about it yeah things have a really good chance of going sideways fast well said why not have both that's right absolutely enjoy the game joe and we'll see you next time okay buddy you too
The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon.